Before the service today, I, I remembered uh, a gentleman that my dad used to play rugby with. Uh, and before uh, every match, and I, I kid you not, I remember uh, watching him dart back into the bathroom before every rugby match. Uh, before every rugby match, this, this gentleman would be uh, so worked up about the match, so uh, excited, so anxious, uh, and he, uh, at least in his perception, had such an importance of it uh, that before every match he would uh, go back into the bathrooms, uh, vomit, and then come back and play the rest of the game with everybody else. Uh, in fact, quite often uh, the majority of the team would, would run out onto the, the pitch, as you do in a rugby match, uh, and subsequently, 30 seconds later, this other gentleman would come at a greater rate of knots uh, onto the field. Uh, why do I say that? What on earth does that have to do with the service today? Uh, it made me think that um, this particular gentleman obviously had such an importance in his mind on the game of rugby that he was about to play that it worked him up to such an extent that he felt the need to vomit or, or had to, perhaps. Uh, and it made me think as a... Uh, as a person who comes to preach, how much more important uh, I ought to uh, regard what is about to occur. You know, I come to, uh, to preach the word uh, of the living God. And so if somebody should attach such an importance to a game of rugby, uh, how much more uh, myself to, to this? Um, rest assured, the contents of my stomach remain where it ought to. Um, but you see the metaphor. And of course, I mention this not just for my sake, but for uh, our sake as a congregation also. Uh, whether in the preaching or in the listening, nonetheless, we come to uh, engage with the words of the ever-living God. Uh, and so there ought to be an extreme kind of importance uh, that we place on, on what is about to occur. Uh, so with that as sort of the, uh, can we say, the 45,000 feet uh, introduction, let's go back down to 30,000. Uh, the, the passage that I, I plan to preach through today is uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. Uh, and I've entitled the message very simply, just living water uh, being the, uh, the main point or the main thrust of what I think the text is on uh, and certainly in what I'll speak on. Um, but uh, amongst this congregation, I feel obliged to say, to give this analogy is perhaps dating me. Um, in other congregations, it wouldn't be quite so necessary, but amongst this one, uh, this analogy is perhaps dating me. Um, I don't know how many of you guys remember the movie uh, in the, I think it was in the 90s, uh, called Space Jam, uh, whereby Michael Jordan, who retains his name in the movie, uh, essentially uh, is sucked into a, uh, a golf hole by the Looney Tunes uh, in order to eventually play basketball with them uh, and help them, I can't remember the full story, but I think help them to defeat their enemies or something like that. Uh, in the movie, uh, Bugs Bunny gives Michael Jordan uh, this bottle of liquid, which I think he calls Mike's Magic Stuff. Uh, and in the movie, it turns out as the, uh, the sequence goes on, that Mike's Magic Stuff uh, is actually just water. Bugs Bunny went to the tap and he, he filled it up and he put the lid back on, he gave it to everybody and yet somehow it had given them these uh, superhuman powers whereby they, they grew to great heights and great strength uh, and played uh, basketball in this case, I was going to say rugby again, played basketball uh, with a lot greater skill. But Mike's magic stuff uh, was just water. 
Uh, and because the Looney Tunes thought it had something special or magical in it, uh, that was the reason it gave them uh, such basketball playing skills. So they had a, an ordinary substance which they attached uh, great value to. Conversely, uh, in this section of, of scripture, Jesus speaks with uh, the Samaritan woman uh, and she is offered something which is truly a great uh, substance, though of course it is not a physical substance. Uh, and yet she thinks that uh, it really is quite ordinary, apart from the fact that it will uh, permanently quench her physical thirst. So let's read uh, John 3 from 31 uh, to chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, and the portion from chapter 3 comes in the context, as Tom preached on last week, uh, of John the Baptist discussing with his disciples his rejoicing uh, that the bridegroom, Jesus, is receiving the attention uh, and that more are flocking to him as opposed to staying with John the Baptist. So John chapter 3, uh, verse 31. Hear now the words of the ever-living God. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In our text for today. Now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees, sorry, when, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For, Je for Jews rather had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. 
Lord, we have uh, read your word, and now would you guide me, my heart, my thoughts, my words, as I uh, expound upon it, uh, and may you help us all, Lord, to uh, interpret your word rightly, to take on what is good, uh, and Lord, may it bear fruit in our lives. May we uh, retain something of the, a large part of the amazement of the fact that we uh, have heard and are contemplating the words of the God who created all with his very word. Lord, may there be a, a reverence, uh, an appropriate peace uh, that falls upon us as we contemplate these things and all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so you might like to, um, now that you're in, in John 3 or 4, you might like to turn to Ezra chapter 4. So the, the section that we've just read, as you're aware, uh, concerns primarily uh, Jesus and an unnamed woman of Samaria uh, discussing water, specifically living water, which uh, Jesus offers to her. When Jesus asked for a drink of the woman in, in verse 7, she replies with surprise, uh, which John commentates on in, in verse 9, saying, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans, uh, as you're turning there in Ezra 4, are, are mentioned here uh, as detractors of the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. So Ezra 4, just verses 8 and 10, says this, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province of beyond the river. Uh, and they go on to uh, mitigate against this, uh, this rebuilding of Jerusalem to raise uh, flaws about these folks or alleged flaws uh, against these folks from Jerusalem uh, who would aim to rebuild. Uh, so this forms uh, part of the reason of why there was a, uh, a divide between uh, the Samaritans and the Jews. In complement to that and in addition, uh, contrary to the command uh, of Deuteronomy chapter 7 not to intermarry with other nations after entering the promised land to dispossess them, uh, the Samaritans were uh, a mixed-race group of people. Uh, and we must understand this not in terms of the 21st century, uh, as if God was trying to cause the people to create this sort of racist nation, uh, but rather God, uh, in typological form, was trying to create this pure nation that followed him, which would eventually uh, point towards the antitype, being the New Covenant community, uh, a people wholly devoted to him, a, a nation uh, as it were, of Christians. Uh, but Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4 says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be quickly kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Uh, and indeed, uh, the, the Samaritans did and do, uh, have sort of pseudo-Jewish practices, uh, which are sort of partly Jewish-ish and partly not Jewish-ish. Uh, and a small number, I learned in my studies, uh, exist to the present day. 
that's more of a fun fact. Uh, but despite the hostility, and this is all an introduction, despite the hostility between uh, Jews and Samaritans, uh, it is particularly notable and notable of the, the nature of the new covenant um, that Jesus uh, says that his followers will preach the gospel to them. They have the ability uh, to come within the covenant community once more. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the, the main part of the passage uh, is Jesus and the Samaritan woman discussing water and the Samaritan woman's initial confusion over what Jesus' living water, so-called, is. This is the immediate context. The immediate application goes to this Samaritan woman uh, and subsequently to her companions in Samaria. Uh, but to uh, consider for us here today, how does it apply to us? Uh, at least two questions came to mind which I'll uh, endeavour to answer as we go through the text. Firstly, what is, quite simply, what is the living water that Jesus speaks of? If it is uh, not like Mike's magic stuff, it is, if it is not simply water, uh, it is something amazing, what is it? How do we define it? And secondly, have you drank of this living water? At the conclusion of the section that I read in, in verse 15, it seems the Samaritan woman that Jesus is talking to uh, is still confused about what this living water is. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She gets that maybe it uh, is some sort of magical water that makes you never thirsty ever again. Uh, but may we understand what this living water truly is and drink deeply of the same permanently quenching uh, not so much physical thirst, uh, but our spiritual thirst and finding great nourishment within it. So I'll read uh, through a few verses again. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Commentators uh, appear not to have a consensus uh, as to exactly why Jesus departed from the region. Uh, some say that there uh, was persecution may have occurred due to this knowledge of the Pharisees, uh, which at the early stage of Christ's ministry uh, may have marred the reputation thereof. This is one theory. Uh, others say that uh, John MacArthur, for one, say that Jesus and John uh, were in the spotlight because of their message regarding repentance and the kingdom. This uh, particular message, uh, as it is today, uh, was a, a controversial one. Uh, it cut to the heart, uh, and it was uh, indeed a one that had political consequences, uh, which would have deposed Caesar. So John's disciples were troubled by Christ's increasing popularity, given this, and the focus of the Pharisees, and therefore uh, Jesus travelled north to avoid contention. There's a couple of uh, theories, but the, the point of traction for us, and, and what we can say with some certainty, uh, is that Jesus travelling uh, from Judea to Galilee would take him through Samaria, 
because this was the most direct route. You have, um, for those of you who are not familiar with a, a map of the area, which I would not be had I not researched it, uh, you have Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Uh, otherwise, you have a, a very large loop to the east uh, or a very large swim to the west. Uh, so the most direct route was Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Verses 5 and 6 say, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So a little bit more on uh, Samaritans and Jews. Uh, Samaritans, uh, in difference from the Jews, believe that Mount Gerizim, which is in the vicinity of Sychar, mentioned in those verses, uh, was the site that Yahweh, that God, had given for worship. Uh, Genesis 33:19 details Jacob buying the piece of land mentioned from Shechem's father. Uh, Sukkah and Shechem are the same place. Uh, and Joshua 24:32 uh, shows that it was an inheritance of the sons of Joseph. Uh, so the, the Samaritans had attached, this is the place of worship. This is where uh, God ought to be worshipped. The text shows uh, that Jesus was uh, wearied from his journey. Uh, it was the sixth hour, it was about midday, uh, the hour being measured from six o'clock, so six plus six is twelve, uh, and it was therefore part of the heat of the day. Uh, and commentators note uh, that this is one of the more uh, humanizing passages about Jesus. Jesus is tired, he's thirsty, uh, he's probably hungry, given that his disciples have gone into the town to buy food. Uh, we see here Jesus not as this uh, God aloof, uh, but this truly God, truly man, uh, sitting at this point uh, in Samaria, hungry, tired, and thirsty. Uh, we are able to uh, connect with him, I suppose, in that way, and he with us, more to the point. Uh, but putting our our Christology hats on, our more theological-based hats on, uh, we see couched in these verses numerous things, uh, which we'll develop as we go along. Jesus gives light, living water, which is unto eternal life. This, this man, just like uh, you or me, this man that was sitting in front of this woman of Samaria, uh, it is truly God. And this man gives living water unto eternal life. It's, it's really quite an astounding statement the more you wrap your head around it. This man has prophetic insight, which you see in verses 16 to 19 of the chapter. Uh, and in uh, even more latter parts of the chapter, this man is the Messiah. And so both his humanity and his deity are seen uh, within this passage and perhaps just a little bit beyond what I've read to today. Uh, he truly is the God-man. So verses 7 and 9 of the chapter. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As I mentioned, uh, this passage shows Jesus uh, as, as truly man. And we, we have this uh, thing where we see that Jesus uh, has been tempted. He has been in the same kind of conditions that you and I have been in. Uh, he is both weary and thirsty. His disciples have gone off to buy food uh, for hunger and, and ongoing sustenance. Uh, he is our brother in his humanity. Uh, and you might say, why, why point this out? Why stress this? Uh, and though it's not one of my main points from the text, uh, there are surely times where it is a blessing to know that Jesus has lived through the same human struggles and temptations that we have. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for instance, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We can conclude from this that there is actually a possibility of being tempted, of being tried in every way and not sinning. I think oftentimes we have, uh, have it in our heads that it's a foregone conclusion that we, uh, we are tried, we are tempted, and therefore we fall into sin. We have Jesus as our example, uh, showing that that does not have to be the case for those who uh, are fueled by him. And in compliment, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, God himself, in one of those good and perfect gifts that James speaks of, uh, provides us a way to escape from every temptation. So Jesus, uh, in this passage from John chapter 4, even endured uh, the possibility of being hangry, to use the term, uh, hunger producing anger, for those of you not familiar with hangry. Uh, Jesus even endured the possibility of being hangry and endured it without sin. And it's not such a, a trite example as, as you might think, uh, because everyday temptations uh, produce the ability for everyday sins. And therefore to know that Jesus even endured uh, such a, an everyday thing as being hangry or being uh, thirsty and sinning, uh, and yet without sin, uh, is surely a comfort to us. Uh, the Hebrews verses especially note to us Jesus having been in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so as I said, but just to reinforce, uh, this logically necessitates uh, that there is the possibility of being tempted to sin and yet resisting this and not doing so. And so consider in application, consider this truth uh, as you take your thought captive the next time you are tempted to, uh, to blow your tree at someone uh, or something or some frustrating situation. There is the actual possibility of being in that situation and yet thinking of Christ uh, and not sinning instead of sinning. Verses 10 to 15, and uh, it's our final section, but um, we'll spend a little bit of time here. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So you might forgive the woman of Samaria after the first bit for thinking this Jesus seems a, a, a little strange, but after the second time he speaks, surely you have to think if you're in the woman of Samaria's shoes, uh, the nature of what this water is seems to be something uh, pretty profound. I remembered as I uh, thought about these verses, uh, the concise purpose of the book uh, of John as recounted by John MacArthur, which I, I quoted when I did the, um, uh, the introduction to the whole book of John. It says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Of course, quoting from chapter 20, verse 31. MacArthur goes on to say, The primary purposes, therefore, are twofold, evangelistic and apologetic. Uh, and we have Jesus both uh, evangelizing to this woman in this section uh, and also proving himself to be the God-man, Messiah, arguably an apologetic function. So I, I don't suppose the Samaritan woman saw Jesus' reply coming. If you go through the conversation, uh, he had asked her for a drink. She replied in surprise, querying how a Jew asked a drink from a Samaritan woman. And Jesus replies to this, that if she realized who he is, she would have asked him for a drink of living water. Uh, a pretty strange passage of conversation uh, to start with. The, the words used for living water are chudor zon. Uh, now zon, we're going to move past this nerddom very shortly, so stick with me. Uh, zone is the, the root word for za'o and translates as live, be alive, alive, quick, lively, lifetime, uh, a number of applications that you can make from it. Uh, but my point in saying that is that living water, as Jesus used it here, uh, can simply refer to moving or flowing water. Um, the phrase in and of itself uh, doesn't necessarily have to have something spiritual about it. But Jesus assertion, given Jesus' assertion that his living water will become, to quote from verse 14, a spring of water welling up to eternal life, uh, it is clear that we have something far beyond Mike's magic stuff here. Uh, the same or related word to illustrate this whole live notion uh, is used in Matthew 4.4, where it says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's not just some uh, physical sustenance, uh, but it leads unto eternal life. So hearkening back to those two questions, the first one, what is the living water that Jesus speaks of. 
Uh, and this is my sort of pithy definition, which I'll break down and give a bit more on. Living water equals eternal life, salvation and blessing that originates within the Godhead for the elect, given by the Son to those chosen by the Father by means of the Holy Spirit. It's a bit to take in. I'll give it to you again. Living water is eternal life, salvation and blessing that originates within the Godhead for the elect, given by the Son to those chosen by the Father by means of the Holy Spirit. It is a, a Trinitarian work. So eternal life, salvation and blessing. Uh, indeed, verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Tom uh, quoted from Zechariah uh, before. Zechariah 14 verses 8 and 9 say this, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So there is uh, salvation and blessing are seen here proceeding from Jerusalem, Jerusalem of the Jews. And consider Jesus' statement further, further on in verse 22, that salvation is from the Jews, Jerusalem being the place of worship thereof. So eternal life, salvation and blessing. Uh, and you sort of see the opposite of that in Jeremiah chapter 2. It says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so you see, uh, sort of on the, on the inverse, there was and is great blessing in seeking Yahweh, in seeking God and only him. His ways and only his ways. And yet God's people here in Jeremiah had forsaken both. We might ask ourselves, uh, do we do the same? So eternal life, salvation and blessing, it is given by the Son, as we see in, in verse 14. I won't read it again. Uh, to those chosen by the Father, we see in John 6, 39 to 40. And this is the will of him, the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, I mean the will of the Father, everyone who looks upon the Son, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, the emphasis being on the Father who gives to the Son. And the last section uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and perhaps the, uh, the most clearly that we see this is in John 7, uh, verses 37 to 39, or at least the clearest within earshot of where we're in, in the text. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There it is again. Uh, now this he said about the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified.
So living water equals eternal life, salvation and blessing that originates within the Godhead for the elect, given by the Son to those chosen by the Father by means of the Spirit. That's what I'm defining as living water. Secondly, and perhaps to apply it uh, to each individual here today uh, and each individual ever. So uh, if you've gone away, come back now because this is about you. Have you drank of this living water? Uh, Turn to Ezekiel 36 if you have your Bibles. Because really to say, have you drank of this living water uh, is the same question as saying, are you a Christian? A person who has eternal life, living water, eternal life, basically the same thing, is a person who has drunk of living water. Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 to 7, uh, in defining this person who has drank of living water, say this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you've heard me before and you'll hear me again ask, have you had holy heart surgery? Uh, This text Uh, speaks about, and I will give you a new heart. There's this removal of the old heart with its sinful desires, with its uh, desire to go towards that which is evil, that which is against God's law, uh, and this putting in, this heart replacement uh, of a new heart, one that is fleshly, malleable to the ways of God. Does that define you uh, sitting here today, one who has had that old heart, that stony heart removed, and had the new heart put in by God alone. Do you have a heart that is malleable to the ways of God and cold towards the world's ways? Or rather, do you readily participate in the world's ways and find God's ways a little bit difficult to deal with? Does the spirit within you cause you to be careful to be obedient to God's rules? This is not uh, simple legalism. This is not trying to win our way to God because we obey a certain set of rules, because we uh, put a tick next to each one of the Ten Commandments, as if we could. But this is a person whose disposition has turned from here all the way around to here. Uh, A person who now hates uh, disobeying God, who hates the world's ways and loves the ways of the Lord uh, and to obey them. So does the spirit within you cause you to be careful to obey God's rules? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Do you long for the ways of God? Such that you might say, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes, as if this was the the desire of your heart. Does your life uh, therefore give evidence that God's law is within you, written on your heart, as Jeremiah speaks about in his 31st chapter? 
John 14 verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, and though I realize time marcheth on, time marcheth on rather, uh, let me introduce you uh, by way of anecdote to a, an old friend of mine called Stephen, a literal guy despite the way that story started. Uh, Stephen is a, a guy that I met in, in America, uh, and I, if you saw Stephen, and I mean this with not the slightest bit of malice because I love him, he's a great guy, if you saw Stephen, you'd be like, that guy looks like the quintessential nerd. There's just the vibe that he gives off. Uh, and he, he told me a story when I, when I met him that he used to have uh, such anxiety that even at the, like walking across the quadrangle in his school, uh, he would have panic attacks. Not that anybody was do any, doing anything to him, uh, just he, he had such a level of anxiety uh, that he would have panic attacks just walking across the, across the quadrangle in his school. The place that I met Stephen uh, was preaching the gospel uh, with a microphone, so amplified, outside an abortion clinic. Uh, not exactly your easiest place to be in general, uh, and certainly not to preach the gospel in an amplified fashion. Uh, and one thing that uh, Stephen would often say is, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I can hear it in my head uh, like I was there with him. And so uh, the point that Stephen was getting at uh, is that some of these ladies, some of these people going into uh, Planned Parenthood in order to have abortions would claim, oh, I do, I do love Christ. I, I am a Christian. And yet Stephen's retort to them was, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will certainly not murder the child within you. So coming back to, to my question, does your life, does the life of these people, in that case, going into the abortion clinics, does it give evidence that God's law is within you, that it is written on your heart, that you have had that holy heart surgery? Uh, and don't excuse yourself too readily uh, because you say, well, at least I'm not killing my baby. Okay. But are you, uh, are you predisposed now to being honest, to loving that which is righteous, that which is wise, that which is in accordance with God's commands? Does your heart long for the word of God? Now, of course, surely, as we'll um, uh, discuss further before communion, surely the scriptures say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, there is forgiveness for those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith, the very point of partaking of this living water. Now, uh, I'm not saying this uh, to rock the salvation uh, of those who are soundly saved. Uh, of course, all Christians uh, stumble into sin from time to time. But it's in order to uh, cause us to, to assess, is the pattern of our lives one who loves the ways of God or one who doesn't? Do I stumble occasionally, confess the sin, repent uh, and partake of that living water? Uh, or am I one who lives in the ways of constantly having to repent because I don't really care about the nature of that repentance? Uh, it seems a, a valid application of the text. Uh, and also, uh, I say this, these things, that all may know 
this eternal life, salvation and blessing that originates within the Godhead for the elect, given by the Son, to those chosen by the Father by means of the Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, that all may know and partake of this living water. So to conclude, uh, we see in the passage the truth of Jesus' statement that he came to seek and save the lost. Uh, he spends time ministering with this lady uh, of Samaria, pointing out, as we'll see as we go on in the text, uh, her sin and yet offering her the balm of salvation, that living water uh, unto eternal life. And so when we consider our own sin, we ought not too readily to look down our noses at the sins of the Samaritan woman. She may have had five husbands and uh, her current one that she was living with may not have been uh, her husband, but surely we sin uh, in great ways also. God truly uh, is kind to sinners as we were. The, uh, the words of the hymn, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom once again. Uh, come into my head. And so we ask two questions. What is this living water that Jesus speaks of? And I think I've given you that definition a few times, but happy to repeat it to you personally afterwards. Uh, and secondly, have you drank of this living water? Does your heart and hence your outward life convey the characteristics of one who has had holy heart surgery? And so may we not only initially drink of this salvific living water, uh, but daily give thanks, love, and devotion to the giver of that water, uh, this water that wells up in us to eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you show yourself in this passage ready to give uh, living water to sinners uh, such, as, such as we, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that just as you give wisdom liberally to those who ask of it, Lord, you rejoice to give uh, living water to those who turn away from their sin and who trust in you. Lord, I pray that each one of us, from the youngest to the eldest, uh, would all be participants in that, that we would all have your eternal life, be it now or be it in the future. I pray it all to your glory and in your name. Amen.